All right, welcome back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, I have the dude with the love your melon hat, Alex Friedman, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado. Today, we're going to continue our anatomical approach to training series. We're going to be talking about the hip. I feel like this one should have been one of the first ones we did with how important the hip is. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But we'll start off with the training side, start off with the movement assessment side, and then we'll on the back end, typically how we lay it out is we'll go into the healthcare side of things. So Alex, let's start with the movement prep. What, what are we looking at? Um, and then what are some of the horizontal and vertical approaches we can take? Well, yeah, I mean, as soon as far as training the hip, I mean, the hip is integral in pretty much every movement that you do, especially when you're standing. Right. But when we're looking at the hip and we have a fresh athlete coming in, we're looking at their movement patterns and going through our assessments, um, almost like a, one piece or part of the puzzle in every assessment that we do looks at the hip, right? We, we've done our um, sideline shoulder sweep. Like there's a lot of lumbar stability and um, thoracic mobility that all affect the hip in that movement where I'm laying on my side and trying to sweep my arm all the way across without lifting my hips or compensating through lumbar extension. So that in itself is a little bit of a hip. We look at, we do a single arm down dog movement, looking at hip flexion and seeing how we can stabilize through that. We have our low bear liftoff, um, again, straight stability. Um, so most of our assessments, um, and then we even look at like strength and power diagnostics. Like we have a trap bar deadlift in there and like that again, points directly to the hip. And, and when you're looking at that stuff, it's how does this athlete stabilize control and then eventually move through their hip. So assessment is, is our takeoff point uh, with everything. Yeah. And then we could also add in the hip switch test, which is also a part of everything we're talking about as a part of the building a fighter assessment we're trying to put together and actually have already put together. Um, but the hip switch is also going to, if you think about like from a 90, 90 position, so 90 degree of hip and knee flexion, and then we're rocking back and forth and we can check out the mobility versus the stability and checking to see if the low back is kind of working its way in. If you're rounding the low back to get to these certain positions or if you can maintain that proper diaphragmatic breathing, that proper, proper stabilization, and then get true internal and external rotation, getting into those positions that we're looking at. Yeah. I mean, and then from, from that assessment piece of things, we, we gather a, a overall image of how you move. And then we talk about inputting the proper programming or inputting a, a specific movement, like breathing has a, a lot to do with our stabilatory pattern. Um, and then for me, when I look at it, we look at a hinge, a squat, some of the vertical horizontal patterns, and we start training those from the ground up, you know, because just because, you know, I have a world-class athlete in front of me, um, and they can deadlift 400, 500 pounds doesn't mean that they're moving correctly. And that's actually being beneficial for them. So we start from the ground up, you know, you got to check these boxes, this box is, this box that we're stabilizing correctly and moving through our hip extension, not just lumbar extension. And then from there, it's kind of off to the races, whether I know I personally, I can start with a dowel hip hinge. I can go into a bear crawl, just look at how we can stabilize through the the hinge, how that's moving. And then I progress from a kettlebell deadlift into a trap bar deadlift into kettlebell swings and jumps and some things that are more powerful, but going through those movements and those essential prerequisites hammers home the pattern hammers home 
everything that we want to um, integrate into our good movement later on down the line when we're training with more advanced methods. Well, dude, talk about the talk about that progression and go a little bit further because I feel like that's something that a lot of skill coaches that are that have to fit that double role of skill coach and strength coach that they don't understand is that the the progression of Hey, you can't just throw somebody into a barbell deadlift. And in, in all reality, there needs to be a kettlebell to trap bar to barbell or whatever it may be, a progression yeah. through. Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you can throw people straight on the barbell. And that's where I, I see a lot of coaches that um, just accept that as a general way of being like, yes, this athlete can do that movement. Does that mean it's being optimal for them? Like, and right. that's, that's the question that you have to ask. Um, so, yeah, a guy walks in day one and he's an animal. I can put him straight on the barbell or the trap bar and he can off to the races. Right. But then in six months, is he going to be still there? Is he going to have a back injury? Is he going to have some other compensatory fashion or should I start him on this progression, which I'm a big fan of just to hammer everything home and then get him in six months in a better place where there's less pain, there's more performance and things like that. So um, just me typically starting out. um, And obviously you'll start at varying points in this based on the assessment, but we go into a dowel hip hinge, which, um, is part of, may or may not be part of FMS movement screen. I can't quite remember, but so no, but we put the dowel straight up and down along your spine and it doesn't have to be flush on there, but we want to make sure that we keep three points of contact in my eyes. It's that top of the head, the upper back, and then the lower back. And we don't have a super arch and super round in there. And we're able to maintain that pattern consistently. That's the biggest part is that this spinal piece doesn't change as we move. Um, which is not a problem that the spine cha- moves and changes when you're being an athlete, when you're moving, it should. But when we're practicing moving heavy loads, we want to stabilize and use our trunk to not move the spine. So we get in there, we essentially do an RDL or like a hip movement or a hip hinge movement. And we see where the spine goes. Does it stay glued to the back? Do we arch our back and then it lifts off the butt? Then that's lumbar flexion. No bueno for our deadlifts. Um, <laughs> Do we lose the head? Just any, any amount of things. And uh, again, most athletes, if they've been coached through this once or twice, they're going to ace it. Excuse me. So if they've been coached through this once, they're going to ace it and they understand how to flatten their back and how to stay on the, on the dial, which is the environmental constraint. Doesn't mean they know how to stabilize practically and, and move efficiently. Just means that they can accomplish that task, which again, is one step forward because if they didn't know how to do that before, we've made improvement, right? So then for me, just to uh, moderate the load better, to get a better center mass or center of gravity in our feet, I go on to the kettlebell deadlift, which you can place directly in between your feet and we get in a better starting position on that than having a barbell out front of us. Plus again, like I said, you start with a kettlebell that's 30 or 40 pounds versus, I mean, most gyms and athletes don't look at a barbell unless there's 135 pounds on there. Right. So yes, we go for the kettlebell. Um, we practice that hinging movement and we make sure we're driving through the hips and our intent is to get the hips forward. Our intent is not to just pick the weight up off the ground. Cause if our intent is just to pick the weight up off the ground, your body is going to go to the most efficient pattern. The most efficient pattern is not a hip drive. Most efficient pattern is an extension of the lumbar spine, standing up, pushing through the quads and the toes to get up. And that is not the right recipe for the horizontal hip pull. Um, So we ensure that we have, we talked about our foot, the quad pod in the ground. We ensure that we have lat lat stability, pull the shoulders, tuck those in. Um, We inhale and fill up the cylinder of our stomach. Make sure we have, again, that bracing going on. And then from there, 
what I tell my athletes to do is push their feet through the ground and wedge their hips forward. That's it. That's your intent. That's the, how you're going to move and create a pull. That's an actual pull, right? Because we're wedging the hips forward and pulling, not just pushing through the ground. So that'll be mastered again in one to two weeks of training, right? We can get up to a 90 or hundred pound kettlebell and move on from there because event, because that's not essentially, that's not giving us a strength stimulus with most athletes. That's just going to be again, movement prep and practice. Practicing the movement is going to give you the tools to eventually move large amounts of weight and get different training effects. From there, we can go into the trap bar. Again, we've talked about many times the benefits of trap bar versus straight bar, but um, gives us a better center of mass, allows us a better movement pattern going straight vertically rather than pulling against a barbell, uh, which there are different benefits to that. But then we start loading that up. And then essentially what I've seen happen with a lot of athletes is, is the stability and the movement pattern is going to break down way before they can't pick up the weight anymore. Right. So, and I think that's everybody, but we just have to teach the athlete where to draw that line in the sand where it's like, okay, I can pick this up, but it's no longer within my work capacity. It's no longer, um, in my functional capacity, I need to move on or we need to stop there. And then we'll, that's where we'll progress. So long-windedly, that's kind of the progression for a uh, horizontal hip pull, or that's kind of what I look at when we're training an athlete up to a deadlift, a training athlete up to a kettlebell swing, training our athletes up to vertically produce force and jump. Um, again, just a million different applications, but that's the bare bones start of a hip hinge. Well, and so that's all, that's all fine and good, but how do you convey that to your athletes? Because you know, as well as I do combat athletes in particular, get very, very bored in the weight room. <laughs> so if you're having them do a, dow- a dowel hip hinge for two weeks or one week or, or a, just w- even one day, yeah. how, do you, how do you personally convey to them that, hey, this is why we need to do this? Well, this is why it's so low load. And I know you came to me for strength and conditioning, but we need to do other shit first. Well, I mean, the same way as I would communicate if I was a wrestling practice, I was a jujitsu practice. We need to lay these foundational bricks and get the intricacies of the movement because that's when it's going to actually put you forward, right? Just because you learn a rear naked choke once, like anybody and their mother can know how to rear naked choke. Not everybody's Damian Maya, right? Not everybody knows the the particulars of how to master that technique, and that's why you drill that, even though that is you know maybe quote unquote boring on the mats. Right. So I don't know, bro, bro. I'm throwing out twisters fucking left and right. I don't know what the fuck I've, I've never even learned it. Well, I feel, I, I learned, I feel like that's a wrestling technique anyway, but <laughs> um, true, true. I've done that. But anyway, like the intricacies, we lay those foundational bricks. We bring context to what the athlete's learning. Right. We, we tell them this is where we're going to get better at the deadlift in, in two weeks time. And like I said, all the progressions and scales are very individualized to the person. You know, I, I, I probably won't take two weeks on a hip hinge on a dowel hip hinge, right? I'm not going to take two weeks to progress that, but um, give the athlete the context, try and get them to focus internally for that type of movement and to get those internal systems down and those internal um, bracing strategies, movement patterns, what, what we feel in the movement, and then that can become auto, automatic, right? Because once I get my checklist done and I know how to deadlift, that becomes a skill that I can transfer across the board. And then when it doesn't matter if there's 300 pounds on the bar or 95, I'm going to deadlift with that same kind of intrinsic pattern, even though when we get to that point, the focus becomes more extrinsic. But if we give this athlete the skill, they have that to rely upon later down the road in the training. We have to just 
make sure the athlete knows what scale of progression you're on, give them the context into the movement and then build it up too. And I mean, a cheap one, quote unquote cheap, but what I look at is easy for a, you know, a coach or an athlete is you just take it straight to the sport context. We talk about specific training or movement in the weight room that looks like movement on the mat. Well, like a deadlift, it's easy to compare that to like, like a rear lift or, or picking somebody up off the ground. Like that's, that's the easy that's the easiest parallel that we have. So you give that to the athlete, even though, you know, in the back of your head, it's not like you're not practicing a a straight lift by doing a deadlift, you're creating strength in the pattern, but you can give that to the athlete so that they have something to attach and connect it to. Right. Because once that has meaning behind it for the athlete, they're like, okay, this is a pattern that I'm going to actually use in my sport. Then that becomes all the more meaningful and, and they train it and they buy in a little more than this is boring or I don't like this stuff. Yeah, dude. And I actually, something that I, I get really good transference with, or I guess buy-in if you will, is I actually have them do that hip hinge from a B stance or from a wrestling stance, Yeah, right. Or a kicks, kickstand, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Mm-hmm. And that, that gets that automatic, Hey, I need you to learn how to hinge. I need to learn how to load your spring before you then, or load your rubber band, pull it back before you then let it fall or let it shoot forward. And so I have them with that dowel hip hinge and I have them just hinging through their hips backwards in a B stance, which is an awesome way to train that uneven or that offset loading in the exact same pattern, which we'll get into later uh, talking about the difference between single leg versus double leg for the hips. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a good way because a B stance is essentially just a wrestling stance. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, it's a great way for the athlete to realize, Hey, this directly applies to my sport. I've been rounding my back, myself included, as when I was a wrestler. Like my level change was dog shit. And that's probably why I never shot. But like when you hinge backwards, that allows us to then pull that rubber band back. And it gives us so much more force, especially in MMA, where you're going towards a cage where in reality, you don't even have to worry about taking them down. You just need to have so much force that you're driving them to the cage and that opens up everything else. So yeah, it, no, I think exactly. Like, and I think again, when I, when I was wrestling, I was just so strong through that uh, compensatory pattern. That's, that's just all I went to. Right. And like, and that's, that's, I think a, a point worth mentioning when we get into the danger of this, because I'm going to teach this athlete, this new way of movement, and I'm going to tell them uh, why it's more beneficial, how it is more beneficial. And like, and depends on my relationship with them, but like, that's just me saying things, right? Because I, I could, I could teach them this pattern and they can do it. And it's like, man, I can only do, you know, 240 pounds like that. Like I'm telling you, like I, I, I was repping out 315 last week and it's like, yeah. And that's where you have to kind of negotiate the difference as a coach and like explain optimal versus, you know, functional and explain, um, your role in preventing the injury as well as enhancing the performance down the line. It's not like we need to wholesale change every part of your movement, but we do need to stick to these principles in order to avoid injury and in order to, um, like you said, load that spring and give you more, more than what is. Yeah. So moving off, off this a little bit, let's get into the single leg versus double leg approach. Yeah. Right. So most people know like, Hey, a a typical trap bar deadlift, you're gonna have two feet on the ground working both legs at the same time. And then I feel like almost everybody knows what a single leg RDL is or that teeter bird motion. And what are some of the different benefits between doing and whether it be single leg or an offset and then a double leg movement for the hips in particular? I mean, first off, I'm a huge fan of changing it up into a staggered stance, a B stance, a single leg type of movement. 
I'm not a huge fan of doing that exclusively to do it. Um, I see a lot of single leg RDLs and a lot of people practicing single leg RDLs just because that's a quote unquote functional movement, just because it does this and that. It's like, great, but what are we actually trying to instill in the athlete? What are we actually trying to get a benefit out of this for? Um, so that single leg RDL, we look at that. I look at that a lot more in a um, frontal plane, a transverse plane type of stability for the hip. Like when we have two feet planted on the ground, uh, that's nice and all. We're super stable and strong, but that's not how we perform in our sport, right? That's not how we ultimately transfer um, the force. So when we get to a single leg or staggered leg stance, staggered stance, um, I look at how well can we handle these incoming loads. How well can we not deform and lose position? Um, or if we do lose position, where's the compens- Where's the compensation coming from? Where's the leak um, that is happening? Yeah. And then with that, like, I know, like we've talked about on the podcast before, like I love my roof at elevated split squats. We can mm-hmm. make them hingy versus squatty. Uh, for me in particular, I love single leg movements a lot because it tells, it tells a lot about the athlete. So it's almost an assessment in itself if there's a disparity from left to right, especially for hip function, right? So if I, so bring it back to the single leg RDL, something that I implement a lot for hip mobility or movement prep is a hip airplane. Mm -hmm. So a single leg RDL at the, at the, I guess at the bottom, technically of the movement, you're going to open up to the sky, getting external rotation of the hip. And then on your way back down, you also turn in past neutral to get internal rotation of the hip as well. And I can tell really, really, really quick <laughs> if somebody has a disparity from left to right based off of a hip airplane, because yeah. for the most part, people with tighter hips, they're going to have tighter hip one side versus the other. That's just typically how these our MMA athletes operate. And when they do have that, you can see it either. They're not going to be able to actually twist in. They think they're twisting and it's just their spine or they're not even going to be able to open up to the sky and they get stuck with their hip angle at like 45 degrees instead of like a 60 to 70 degree angle. So that's another good assessment you can throw in, but also a fantastic hip movement that has context to it because a hip airplane in in general is going to benefit, benefit nine out of 10 athletes. And it's very, very low cost. There's no, there's no real risks. As long as they're doing it right, you can check you can watch their spine, watch their hips and making sure they're moving through the hip and not the spine, which is another topic that we want to go into. Oh, what's up? Well, before you move on to that, I just wanted to hit on a, a, a little topic. I think it, it, that speaks to the principle that like every rep is an assessment, right? Every rep tells you something as the coach about how your athlete's moving, right? Or how, what yep. position they're in today, what, you know, stress or how sore they are from yesterday's workout. Like I think every, every rep that you perform. And like you said, we're looking at a stagger stance or a single leg airplane. We can look side to side and see the difference there. And that's where you just keep assessing. Like, it's not like we do an assessment once and then we recheck it in six weeks and haven't ever thought about it in between, uh, for as a, as a coach, when you're watching your movement, you're assessing on the fly. Um, and then you're, you're critically thinking about how to, um, develop a better pattern or what cue I should use and, and things. And, um, this is a little bit of a tangent, but when I see somebody either messing up in, uh, not messing up, but having a different range of motion, one side or the other, or moving through their spine, I, I go through three filters in my head. Um, they, there's three reasons that this athlete is performing this in what I deem in my head less, uh, less than optimal, right? They don't know that they're doing it. They don't know, um, how they should be moving or how, how they're moving 
um, ineffectively. So they don't know, right? That, and that's on me as a coach to either educate them or, or lead them to a, a better movement solution. Second is that they know and they don't have the motor program and they don't have the patterning to execute that which is a practice issue. They haven't done this movement enough. They haven't um, really grasped the concept and they haven't felt it right, right? So that's that's where I, as a coach, mostly hold my tongue and I let them explore and keep um, practicing the movement. Third, and, and I think this is less so with a, a professional athlete community and more so with um, some, uh, some high school or youth athletes or um, colleges, like they don't want to be there is the third one. And they're just going through it and getting it done, which – again, is another aspect as a coach that you should rectify and should address because um, if they're not there for that session, is it because they were burnt out from yesterday? Is it because this or that? And then that goes into what we talked about last time, knowing your athlete. So, um, so I think a lot of the times we might mislabel things because I see an athlete moving more on one side and then the other, or they're moving ineffectively. Is it, is it because they genuinely are lacking this range of motion or is it because they don't know that they should be getting that range of motion? Right. So I think that's an important thought to go through your head. Well, and then even not to go too far of a tangent, but we're talking about queuing and that's my, that's my love. So like, and then even another, another lens that I add on top too is like, what, what am I saying to the athlete? How am I saying it? How am I getting my words across? Do I need, do I need to change my message? Maybe they don't understand like my favorite cue for the trap bar deadlift or any deadlift and any hip movement in general is prison defense. Yeah. Right. Favorite cue. Everybody gets it. It's funny. <laughs> gets a laugh nine out of 10 times. Yeah. Um, but do I need to connect with my athlete more and understand how they are thinking through the movement? Because yes, they need to have movement literacy. If you will, they need to be able to practice that movement. They need to be able to do it on themselves. But I feel like a lot of coaches, myself included, I get frustrated when it takes them five or six sessions to get where they, they want to go. And and when in reality, nobody ever looks at themselves, they, they blame the athlete for not being able to move. What about, what if, what if what you're saying is the fucking problem? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think go ahead. I was just, I was just going to say, thinking about like different analogies, that's where our analogy games can come in, where you find something like I'm going to treat Tracy Cortez, a 26-year-old female, I'm going to cue her a lot differently than I cue a um, a one like a recreation jujitsu, like a 60-year-old guy. Yeah, because the different things connect to them. Yeah. So and that that needs to be where if they're not getting it, there needs to be in my eyes, and like two things: do they need to practice the movement, or are you just not? connecting with the athlete are you not cueing them well enough for them to understand what you're saying because nine times out of ten a professional athlete they can look at something they can do it pretty well but if it's a complex movement like a hip airplane where there's a lot of moving parts you need to be able to convey yourself in a way that connects with the athlete not just conveys the exercise absolutely and i I think that that's probably why we went on the standard because the single leg rdl and the hip airplane do get very complex and 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 they're hard to coach how hard to execute correctly. Right. I mean, that's one of the most difficult exercises to coach because it's such a, a particular um, emphasis in a hip stability pattern. And then um, the next layer to it too, is, is whether this athlete's just standing up or they're truly pulling through the hamstring and hip hinging to get up. And I think, and 
as a coach for me, like it's hard to get that on the eye test, right? If I'm just watching an athlete Mm -hmm. do this, like you you have to have that good relationship and have enough context behind it to where an athlete can tell you where they're feeling, what they're moving and how, Um, because I mean, again, it's hard to decipher whether somebody's just picking their chest up and moving or if they're actually thrusting their hips forward and getting the the hamstrings and glutes involved. But enough on that tangent. I think you were going to bring up T-spine mobility, lumbar rotation, something like that. Maybe Dude, you, you just, you just made a beautiful transition in, and then you also <laughs> then just went right out. Cause I was going to talk about low back lumbar extension versus hip extension, which there is the exact same thing <laughs> of what you were just saying. So going off of like, it's hard to pass the eye test. This is where on the healthcare side of things, this is where I love to get hands on. And I don't know. It's just because I don't know just the, like scope of practice. Are you allowed, like legitimately, are you guys allowed to go hands-on? It's, um, I prefer not to, but if you have good rapport with the athlete and they, uh, and I would always approach it with, I'm going to touch you or give somebody, some athlete, some context, mostly you're fine, but, um, okay. Yeah. I wouldn't do it with somebody that you don't have good rapport with. Oh, well, that's where we're different. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is where like when I teach a hip hinge or if I'm teaching uh, a B stance deadlift uh, or anything in general involving the hips, this is where I go hands on and I, I have one hand on the back and then one hand I like point as they're at the bottom or at the bottom of the movement. Think about like a uh, at the deadlift, for example. And when they're at the bottom of the movement and they're grabbing the weight, trying to come out of the hole. I'm like, I poke the bottom of the glute top of the hamstring. I say, this is where you need to pull from. If you're pulling from, and my hands on their back too. I'm like, if you're pulling from here, you fucked up in some way. So then like I have hands on, I'm able to feel the contraction as they go. And my tactile approach allows their brain. That's just another stimulus that allows their brain to realize, Hey, this is what I need to pull from. This is where I need to go from. Um, and, and this is what's going to help me actually complete the movement because that additional, like, like I said, tactile approach or the hands-on is just another stimulus that makes the athlete. It's a different cue. If you will, like we just talked about mm-hmm. myself, myself included, I am a tactile cure. I need to feel things. I prefer if people go hands-on with me because that's what, like, I I'm very kinesthetic. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of, and, and that translates into a lot of our combat athletes, whether they be Absolutely, professional, yeah. recreational, whatever it may be. Like people joke all the time. Like I'm, we're all, like combat athletes are always touching each other. Like I'm hugging guys. I don't give, I don't give a fuck. Like yeah. I'm, 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 we're giving bear hugs. We're, we're me and Alex just grabbing each other half the time, <laughs> fun. but fun. exactly. But we're very kinesthetic and this can be a good approach if it's within your scope. So don't practice outside of your scope. If you're not allowed to to put hands on patient or client, please don't do that. But if you can do kinesthetic cueing wherever you're at, that's, that's an extra layer that helps a lot with hip training because it forces the brain to recognize the tactile cue at the bottom of the glute top of the hamstring, that this is what I need to pull from. This is what generates my force. This is what's safe. Not what I want to get into is overarching the low back, locking in extension compression and not actually breathing into the posterior and stabilizing with breath, just using our lumbar paraspinals or those big old back straps to accomplish the movement and just get quote unquote tall. There's a difference between getting tall and moving efficiently. That's why I don't, I I've strayed away talking about queuing. I've strayed away from the queue at the bottom of the deadlift. Like just get tall, just get tall. Cause every single person I tell that to, they just overarch their back and they just lift up and they're basically not tall. They're yeah. leaning backwards. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and they, immediately when you hear that, you're 
pulling through your upper back. Like that's, that's what I think about it to get my chest up and tall. And like, and that's, and then that's another dreadful cue that uh, I'm probably guilty of using too much, but also is like just chest up, chest up, chest up, chest up. And yep. Show me it. the logo on your shirt. No, I'm like, not it. Uh, yeah. I mean, but I, that I, just, yeah. well, it just, it, it promotes, it's, it's a old school approach. So just because we're talking about the hip. So there's an old school thought that you need to have your chest up at all points in time. And any ounce of rounding of your low back is wrong. And we know from the research, that's just not true. No. <laughs> we know that we want that neutral is a range, but it's just as bad on performance, not on, not on disc health, not on all these different things, but on performance to lock your low back in place as it is to round your back in the deadlift, because we're not working within our functional capacity. If we're just overarching the low back, we're creating a positive or a negative stereotype that most likely if we do a lot of shit under stress, like say heavy ass weight, and we overarch our low back to get there, most likely when you're fatigued, what are you going to go to? You're going to go to the pattern that you've used most. Mm-hmm. And they're like in the fourth and fifth round. That's when you see people lunging on shots. That's when you see people, you throw a heavy cross and they're arching their low back and they leave their chin in the air that typically, or, or even, sorry, let's go wrestling as well. When you're third, third period and you're trying to take a shot and you've been, you've been hitting your double leg, you're getting on the double leg through the first and second period. And then you take your shot and you feel like you hit a brick wall and immediately you're sprawled with your arms over your head. And that person just smashing you into the ground. What changed for the most part? I mean, there's, there's a lot of variables at play, but if you're taking the exact same shot on the exact same person, for the most part, fatigue is playing a factor. And when fatigue plays a factor, you're going to go into the most comfortable position that you've been in. If you overarch your back at all points in time during your strength and conditioning, when you're tired in practice and all these different things, for the most part, you're going to then not use your hips. You're going to use your low back. And then that's going to decrease your overall power availability. And it's going to decrease the force that you're able to transmit into your opponent, thus facing the mat sprawled on top, and you're probably getting scored on and for the most part, losing the match. So this is a direct, even though we're talking about the hip, the spine versus the hip are two that you can't separate them while you would like to, we, we need to function properly through both to be as efficient as possible. And this is this needs to be said in skill training. It needs to be said in strength training. It needs to be said in healthcare as well. Oh, and, and you asked me earlier what I would tell an athlete to get them to do a dial hip hinge, right? That right there. You know, we need to go through yeah, that. But I, asked, but I asked you. <laughs> but we have to go through that cycle <laughs> of making the the unconscious incompetent, right, and unconscious competent. So, yep. and I mean, we've talked we talk about that in coaching circles a lot, and I'll explain it briefly, but. We go from an athlete that doesn't know what they're doing and is doing it poorly. We need to teach them how to do it. And then we need to give them the understanding how to do it. And then ultimately at the end, they're going to do it without thinking about it. Right. Which is when we get to that third period, that fourth, fifth round, and we're fatigued, we default to a good movement pattern, which is going to sustain more optimal loading and more optimal power into our shot, into our punches. Um, And if we can default into that good movement pattern, we're going to be better off and a higher performer because of it. Right. So that that's what that's the end goal with teaching movement patterns is that that we create a more a, a better default movement right? A better automatic program to run in your head in the background. Um, because, you know, if you're in that fourth round or your third period and you're thinking about 
take a breath, stabilize my back. It, it shouldn't overarch. You're not in the game, right? You're not in the, in the sport. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. So that is where we get into how you move through your back and uh, the default movement patterns. I, I don't know where you want to go with that, by the way. I was probably just going to jump into healthcare. Okay. Do you got um, more on training? I mean, for the most part, I think we, we covered it all um, with the hips. I mean, they're the, they're the center kind of driving of every movement that we have um especially within combat sports like the hips are are unavoidable so i think it's important to be able to stabilize and have a a solid foundation even when we're doing our other isolated or other emphasized work outside of the hips so just i mean you can't go wrong by reinforcing good positions um and good stabilization patterns so well and then before we go to healthcare i actually thought of something we can we can bring into not just staying in the sagittal plane but also getting into rotation i know we did a whole podcast on rotation all these different Mm -hmm. things um but something that i've seen more and more and more is a very common exercise i prescribe to people mixed with a hip strength movement is a pulley push pull so i drop the the pulley arms down to right around chest level on both sides. They're going to load their sling first and then explode through with the other hand. So they pull towards their chest on one side and they're going to push through their uh, away from their chest on the other side, pulling and pushing in synchrony. Something I keep seeing over and over and over again is when they do, when, when my athletes do this skill, they overarch their low back. They don't actually load the front foot yeah. And they, they, if they're not able to actually like load into rotation, cause you got to think when you're, when you transmit force an easy, an easy parallel here is baseball pitcher. When a baseball pitcher is set, they go through the windup. And then when they want to throw, they need to plant that front foot to make a post for everything else to go over the top of. If you don't make a post, guess what? You're not going to generate any force. Nothing is going to transfer forward. You need to have something that is going to help every, all the muscles pull, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The same thing can be said with making a, with throwing a punch or throw, throwing like a heavy cross. We need to have that rotation ability in the hip that my pelvis can rotate into my hip. So that'll be internal rotation to then load up the front hip to generate the power needed to transmit all of the, or to generate the power and then also transmit all of the power you've generated towards your opponent. And this is a trainable skill. So something that I would recommend to, to a lot of people, a lot of coaches, strength coaches, healthcare workers, and skill coaches too, is a very easy thing to see is can an athlete load their slings and then also explode through their slings. So you can get two half inch bands. Those are the little, I think those are the red or black ones. Uh, depending on the company you use and you have one hand has a pull one hand has a push and when they load their sling and then try to explode from their sling when they throw that cross are they lunging are they arching their back or are they actually able to pivot and quote unquote sit on their cross and and actually rotate into that front hip because if they're actually moving through their lumbar spine the entire time every single time they do the movement guess what? That's probably what they're doing when they throw a cross. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that repetition is going to just add up into injury. Right. Exactly. Um, so like, like, I don't, I don't know, Jack, like I am not a striking coach. I mm. will never say I'm a striking coach. I don't care how much I learn by being a wrestling coach for a pro team. Your boy ain't going to be a striking coach. Mm-hmm. But what I can say, and what I tell all my athletes is while I'm not a striking coach, I understand biomechanics and I understand force transference really, really well. 
What I can tell you is what you're doing right now is robbing you of force transference. And that's how I'd like to convey that. And then from there, we can, I can have a conversation with the striking coaches, with our boxing coach, with our, I don't even know what Eddie does. Eddie does all the shit. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie does all striking, but I have a conversation with them and I'm like, look, this is what I see on my end. I know I'm not the striking coach. So if if I'm out of my lane, tell me, but he's not, he, him or her in this example, he is who I'm thinking of. He's not able to actually sit in his hip. It would probably benefit him a lot to have him do some sort of like, uh, like a stepping cross drill and force him to load up his hip when he's doing mitt work instead of just, Hey, let's put together 19 different fucking combinations that nobody's going to use in a fight. (laughs) Right. No, and, and I think you, you nailed it with the, you know, the biodynamics and the, the movement efficiency really well. And that's what helps you transfer that into the sport. Because like you said, you're, you're talking about an athlete that when they do the, the rotational movement, they're not transferring any force into their front foot and they're, they're staying back and rotating through their lumbar spine. Like there has to be a linear translation that occurs within most rotational efforts. Right. So mm-hmm. even when I'm throwing a med ball into the wall, like, Yes, I'm rotating and hopefully driving through my hips, but then I'm also moving towards the wall and translating my force that way to get the most power out of it, right? If I'm constantly sitting on my back foot, then I'm not, I'm not maximizing my power into the ball, into the wall. So that linear transmission of force, I think it, it is huge. And, and I mean, you're missing out on power if you're not doing it. So that was what popped in my head when you talked about that a specific example. But then I also talk about, you know, rotational mechanics through the hip. And then I, I think directly about glute activation, right? We're pushing off the back foot. We're rotating. We're using a contralateral pattern essentially to fire through the hip or an ipsilateral pattern if we're throwing a punch to load the hip and extend through the hips, through that back glute contracting and squeezing and sending the hips forward. And then the upper body ultimately follows. Mm -hmm. So, and I I had this explained to me really well um, at the university of Denver when I was doing my internship there. And we were talking about rotational based movement. And um, one of my mentors pulled out just a water bottle, right? And you have a water bottle there's, and it went through a whole scale of movement and stuff, but there's essentially six ways to open that water bottle using the cap in the bottle. And when we're talking about rotational forces, one of the ways to open the bottle, and this is probably most akin to an Ips lateral pattern, is we can rotate the bottle and the cap the same direction, but we rotate the bottle faster. Yeah. And that makes sense. That's going to open the water bottle eventually, right? Mm-hmm. And that is sure. ipsilateral patterning because the hips and the, the lower body are driving the movement. That's the bottle moving and rotating faster, and the upper body is catching up to that and to deliver the punch and deliver the force. That's, that's the force transference that we're looking for. So. When, when we're looking at that, there's good and bad ways to do that. And that's what Austin's kind of outlined um, within the, the compensation patterns or driving through the hips and, and translating forward. Hell yeah. And then mo- that, that's a kind of good segue into the main thing I want to talk about on the healthcare side. And it's, it's not just healthcare. It's everybody can work on this is hip internal rotation. Hip internal rotation, I think, is one of the biggest detractors on power generation, power transference, and overall technique in combat sports. Mm-hmm. Think about this. If you, if you don't, if you're not able to get your hip internal rotation, you have to cheat through your spine. If you have to cheat through your spine, then you're overusing your lumbar erectors and your, in your QLs as well. 
because you're probably going to dip away to try to get that movement in. And that's going to rob you of being able to fill up and pressure into your low back. As soon as you start doing that over and over and over again, and again, this is whether it's structural or a mobility deficit. So some people have actual, there's a bony deformity where there's, it's, it's called FAI and they cannot internally rotate or they have a labral tear and it's really hard to internally rotate. Um, or you have the mobility deficit, you grant it, you have to cheat through your lumbar spine because no matter what the brain has one goal, it's to accomplish the movement. So you're going to yeah. fucking do the movement. It doesn't matter how you do it. You're going to get that done. So how I want to go about this is there's two different things we can talk about. There's the structural deformities, and I don't want to go too far into that because this is going to like, if you want to get this back, that requires surgery, right? So you, if you have a, a, a pincer deformity, or if you have just FAI in general, that means that you structurally, your hip socket is going to pinch when you go into internal rotation. That sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and what's up? before you move on from that, I'm just saying, I think this argument is in the strength and conditioning world where that, uh, bears his head the most is when I'm talking about deep squats, right? And deep squats yep. require a little bit or enough hip internal rotation. And that's, that would be in my head, a, a big argument against forcing everybody to deep to a deep squat. And I think that's logical, right? Or I think that is logical. If somebody gets forced into deep squat and it's painful every time, don't do the deep squat. Right. Right. But yeah. I don't think, I don't <laughs> think that's a reason that nobody should deep squat. Um, so, right. Well, and, and then without going too far on a tangent, like there's, I mean, uh, a guy that graduated from my school about four or five years before me, his name's Ryan DeBell. He did an entire dissertation on hip anatomy. I think I've talked yeah. about it on the podcast before, but yeah, he, he, he literally did a cadaveric dissection, um, dissertation talking about the difference hip anatomy and talking about how, if you have a shallow, shallow socket versus deep socket, different irregularities of femoral head, all these different things that can play into your squat mechanics. And that's, that's his name. His online thing is the movement fix. Great follow actually, by the way, if, if you want to follow him. Um, but that's kind of what he talks about is squat mechanics need to change based off the person and not just based off the person, but based off of their, her, uh, heredity, ethnicity. What's, what's the actual Gen- term? Genetics. Gen- Genetics. Yeah. Genetics, that one. And anatomy. Yes. But I was, uh, genetics is what I was looking for. Where, where you're from actually, Dr. Stu McGill has, he did a lot of research where the, the Polish hips versus the Scottish hips and one's able to get deeper into a squat based off of the more shallow anatomy of the hip socket. You can move, but there, that's also more prone to hip dysplasia versus one. You're not ever going to comfortably squat below parallel but they're really, really fucking strong and parallel. <laughs> yeah. So there's, and that's all just from, and that's, that's both of those, are, those, both those two areas are from Europe in general. It's not even talking about difference between like the, the Asianic heritage versus the Latin heritage versus Canadian, all these different things. So that's one good example of like squats are going to be different based off the people. And then bringing it back to hip internal rotation, hip internal rotation is going to be different based off of the people you're working with. So the first step is finding out, is this irregular from side to side? I feel like I hit it on it all the time in our anatomical approach, but I say it, the UFC did that research a while back in their uh, the PI handbook, whatever whatever it's called. The yeah, cross-sectional analysis. Yeah, cross analysis of a, yeah, whatever. Um, phenomenal resource, hard to remember name. Yeah, but... Uh, it's a great resource. Check it out. But to, to sum up what I'm getting at is if you have a greater than 10% disparity from left to right in range of motion, you're at a 70 to 90% increase of injury, a likelihood of injury in that joint. 
So that's what I look at first. Internal rotation, both passive and active. Is there a disparity from left to right, right to left? If there is, we need to work on the internal rotation because it is most likely not a structural deformity. <laughs> it is most likely a mobility deficit unless there was trauma to the area. Yeah. So that's the first step. And how you do that, you could have them actively, you could do the hip switch test, which is in the building a fighter uh, movement screen. You can do have them lay face up and move their knee in or out with a 90-90 bend of the knee. If you're passively doing it, that's what you're going to do to check that. Or you can have them prone and moving their hip in and out. There's a bunch of different ways, but please just assess the internal and external rotation on both sides. <laughs> and then going from that, we need to figure out, is it a mobility issue or is it a a flexibility or structural issue, because if you can move them into full quote unquote, full internal rotation, but oh damn, it's about to die. My phone's dying. Sorry. That's okay. So you're going to save it and then come back. Yeah. Hold on, I just plug- Do you save it as in rescued, not as in corded? Damn it. <laughs> All right. So talking about the mobility problems, whether it's mobility versus stu- or versus flexibility, right? So if I passively can move the internal rotation, I get full internal rotation, but then that person cannot actively get the same internal rotation. That means to me that they aren't able to control that range of motions. That's going to be more of a mobility problem. And that's trainable. A lot of the times when it is a, it, the opposite is when there's a structural deformity or when there's something going on. It's when passively, I cannot get the internal rotation past two degrees, whatever it may be, uh, up to that 15 degrees that we're looking for um, or whatever, whatever that person's normal is. Right. But if I can't get any passive internal rotation, that's when I think that there's a structural deformity. That's when I think stuff is wrong. Um, or if it's different than normal, that's when I think something is wrong, but the difference between training mobility versus training flexibility is flexibility is going to be a much, much longer process than the mobility and the motor control, or there may need to be other avenues that you go down. Like I said, potentially surgery, potentially all these different things that could change the structural damage or the soft tissue issues in the area. Some ways that we can then train if it is a mobility problem though, are going to be our hip switches. So that's why I love that as a, as a assessment, because guess what? That's also going to be a, one of my go-tos for training. So they already know how to then do the movement and I can have them just do the same exact movement, except with different intention. So when they're doing the hip, hip switches, if you will, I'm going to have them fold over the top and almost to like a pigeon that's going to increase our internal rotation. And you can do isometric holds. You can do different, different tempos, whatever it may be that are to the tolerance of the patient and or athlete. Another thing that I really like, and this is where functional range conditioning or, uh, functional at functional range in general, uh, and Andrea Spina's work is really, really good is they have uh, internal rotation hovers. So what you do is you're in that same 90-90 position. That's why I like it so much because it's very applicable. And then instead of switching back and forth and doing a shin box, whatever it may be, I can have them drive that back knee into the ground, trying to lift the ankle off of the ground and then do that for a hold. So this is something that most likely they're not going to be able to do right away. It's extremely hard. It's going to frustrate them. Actually, fighters love it 
because it's so frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, why? Like when I go out there and I, and I do it, I can lift my ankle off the ground three or four inches. And then they don't understand why they can't make, lift their ankle off. They're like, what the fuck? <laughs> so oh. it's, it's a, it's a cool buy-in factor, <laughs> but it's a great exercise. And what I like about it is you can add in that ISO at the top. You can add that ISO in, or you can do what you, what I like to do is you can bring in the knee joint as well. So you can do it in a sense where you're doing a hover, but you have them lift their ankle. If they can get it off the ground, you could have them lift it over a deck of cards or over a tennis ball. And then they add in the hamstring eccentric and concentric movement, the quad eccentric concentric movement. So we're bringing in not just the hip internal rotation, but we're also doing or taxing all of the musculature through that entire chain. This is also a great example of, Hey, we can really see if the spine is involved because if you, it's, if somebody's just cheating, you say, get, lift your ankle off the ground and no matter what, they're going to lift their fucking ankle off the ground. <laughs> they're going to lean forward. They're going to dip away with their spine. They're going to do all these different cheats, whatever it may be, but typically through the spine to lift their ankle off. And you're like, look, I did it. And I'm like, no, you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so it's really important that you have them plant their hands into the ground. You have them fill up with breath with that, um, with that proper bracing and they're not dipping away from the ankle that's moving. They're staying nice and tall, not leaning forward and really focusing on trying to load up the hip joint. If they're doing it right, they're going to feel a burning right through that TFL. So essentially like right through that, uh, lateral hip in that area, like almost mm -hmm. like front front to lateral, if you will. Yeah. Right. Right. Or longer inside of your hip crease type of area. Yeah. Exactly. So they're going to feel like a burning, not a burning in a bad way, but like a, like it's working like yeah, a contraction right. area. People, people have called for me cramps before I me. Mean, it feels yeah. like you're cramping. And I mean, that's part of the, the neur neural training of that area, but yeah, cramps and then discomfort yeah. overall. Right. And then another thing that we can add in is those hip airplanes. And we've already talked about those. I don't want to go into them, mm -hmm. those a whole bunch more, but th those are three very, very useful ways to try to help your athlete regain their hip internal rotation. And then why I think this hip internal rotation is so important is that it affects everything we do in combat sports. Like I talked mm -hmm. about force transference. I took a whole... 20 minute spiel on force transference and loading up the front hip. And it's because that's so important, but also think about snapping a kick down. If you're snapping, if you're going over the top and snapping a head kick, or if you're doing like a hop and chop, you need internal rotation in order to snap with that downward direction and able to turn over the, the kick. If you will think about wrestling, you need hip internal rotation to plant. If you're hitting a sweep single, you need hip internal rotation to plant. If you're doing, if you a Greco wrestler, you do double unders, you have your elbows up high, you have pulling them back, pulling them back. And you're trying to shuck over the top. And you want to go for, like we talked about a straight lift right after that. If you want to get in, step into the danger zone and then hip pivot to then shuck them over the top and take the back. Guess what? Internal rotation. If you don't got it, you're cheating through the spine. Mm -hmm. Jujitsu, same thing. If you want to play a knee shield game at all, if that is in your arsenal, you need hip internal rotation or else guess what? You're going to dip your spine away. You're actually going to turn your back and actually be sideways. And then that's going to be a lot easier for your opponent to then pass your guard and get through. That's what I see when people don't play an efficient knee shield is that they, they aren't using hip internal rotation. They're using the spine to cheat, to try to get there. And then that actually puts you in a not as advantageous position. And that allows them to pass through, swing the leg through, and then get into side control or even into half guard. Both yeah. of those, if you got a wrestler on top, you don't want that. 
Yeah. <laughs> when I see that, I'm just thinking back. That's my back. I'm taking it right now. <laughs> exactly. But hip internal rotation, I feel like that's like, that's like the thing that nobody's talking about really. That is a huge driver of performance deficits yep. all the way through combat sports. And it doesn't matter striking, grappling, fucking like it, and it goes into every sport right but for our combat sports in general striking grappling putting them all together if you don't have hip internal rotation you're going to cheat through the spine if you start cheating through the spine bad shit happens and i don't want bad shit to happen to you or to your athletes yep so uh, please work, please work on the hip internal rotation and i guess what you're saying right away like if you if your body doesn't have the right way to do it it's going to get it done somehow and that's compensation to a t and so i mean i think we need to emphasize that get get everybody moving and able to control their movement and then we'll uh then we'll get into some more optimal patterns exactly um and but that's where i want to kind of go with hip internal rotation um as well as with all of the other diagnoses there's a bunch of stuff that happens in the hip but for Mm -hmm. the most part a lot of that shit can be solved with proper bracing and not trying to overload the hip to make that a stability factor it should always be that mobility factor Mm -hmm. and then also, if you regain the internal rotation, a lot of the problems go away. Crazy, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a dark, it's a dark horse of low back pain. Uh, right. I feel like so many, well, and it is. And I feel like so many people always have like healthcare, like my background, so many healthcare workers have to attach diagnoses to things. And for the most part, that that's great. And you get your ICD-10 toads. That's fucking awesome. But at the end of the day, as long as I rule out the big, bad scaries, hip internal rotation if I fix that, a lot of shit goes away. So mm-hmm. I don't need that. That's not a diagnosis. That's not in ICD 10. I don't get reimbursed for saying I'm fixing hip internal rotation, yeah. but guess what? That's the problem. So you need to, in my mind, that's where that general mindset needs to shift where I'm not like, maybe, maybe you have to say FAI, maybe you have to say uh, uh, hip, dis- hip dysplasia, if you fucking want, maybe you have to say just hip pain. That's where I like those, like almost like general diagnoses, but for the most part, you have to be okay, not knowing the exact diagnosis and then understanding all of the different puzzle pieces that are affecting the hip and then trying to delineate from there, which one is the highest priority. And what I'm telling you is I think proper bracing and then increasing the hip internal rotation should be a very high priority when working on hip pain in your combat sports population. Well, I think that's a practical approach because I think as, as humans and the way we learn and, and everything going to school being objective, we want, we want this to be a problem and we want this to be a solution. And then we want to go through the process and done. Right. But, yeah. but no, nothing's that black and white. Nothing's that cut and clear. Um, you're just going to have to factor and prioritize and, and, and problem solve in a different way than, a, B, C, or D on your multiple, multiple choice. Right. Yeah. So, and think- well, and then on top of all this, like this, this sh- without, it should be without saying like, Hey, a lot of people are going to benefit. If you have hip pain, a lot of people are going to benefit from de- benefit from deadlifts. Guess what? A lot of people are going to benefit from doing banded glute bridges, doing lateral walks, doing these different things that actually increase the strength of the glutes. Right. Yeah. For, for the most part, but I feel like that gets beaten like a dead horse. <laughs> Let, let's yeah. try to move our attention elsewhere because everybody knows that if you do some glute strengthening, a lot of people are going to get better, yeah. but guess what? A lot of people still aren't a hundred percent. They go from 40 to 70. What's that missing 40%? Cause we want to get people to 110% because we're the best, <laughs> but what's that missing? What's that missing 30 to 40%, right? And glute strength only goes so far. 
Yeah. And I think that's, that's where everybody gets stuck in their one lane or their one thing, like, you know, strength that fixes everything or, or, or this drill is the best or this system of movement. I think that's where we can employ a, a multi, uh, multimodal, multi-method approach to, uh, getting better and creating a, the best recipe, not just a recipe. Hell yeah. But that is our hip anatomical approach training and healthcare, I guess. Um, if you guys have any questions on the hip, have any hip problems have want to talk to us about hip training, please reach out all of our stuff, all of our contact information is in the show notes. Um, as always, like I say, help us become friends with your friends, like share, subscribe, do all the fun stuff that allow us to talk to other cool people. Because at the end of the day, we want to make a culture around increasing combat sports training, the literacy of healthcare workers with combat sports, and overall just want to make a better environment for you combat athletes. Cause at the end of the day, that's what matters. It's to try to make you guys make, turn this into a real top tier sport that we all know it is, but trying to elevate everybody along the way. So this is Dr. Austin Ching, Alex Rubin, and we are out. Oh.